pray that as we look at this word, that you would make it come alive to us in every way, shape, and form. Breathe your spirit into us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So how important is a name anyway? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? Where's that line come from? Shakespeare, that's right. This famous quotation from William Shakespeare, from Romeo and Juliet, actually, is a profound one. It seems to suggest that names themselves do not hold worth nor meaning. They simply act as labels to distinguish one thing or person from another. Juliet applies this metaphor to Romeo in that even if he had a different name other than Montague, which was a family war that was going on between their two families, that he would still be the man she loves. Tracy Grant wrote in August of 2012, but many of us would disagree with old Shakespeare on how much a name matters. For example, do you like being one of four Andrews in your class? Or you teased a girl named Amelia by calling her Amelia Bedelia after the character in the books? Do you know that the government keeps track of baby names, noting which ones are popular when? A record of every birth complete with the child's name gets filed with the government. And there's a new website called findmypast.com that looks at the records and makes fascinating discoveries. The most popular girl names change a whole lot more than the boys' names do. On a more serious note, British actress and writer and artistic director for Shakespeare's Globe, Michelle Terry points out, Hitler, Shakespeare, Rosa Parks, Florence Nightingale, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Thatcher, Obama, Trump, Juliet, <laughs> Romeo. There are 7.8 billion people on planet Earth. That's 7,800,000,000 names. And the most recent reports indicate that since COVID-19 began, there have been 2.84 million deaths. That's 2.84 million names representing 2.8 million individual lives. Not to mention all the other people that have died on the face of the earth that have an individual name for their life. Now you tell me how important is a name? How important do you think God thinks a name is? Listen to these words in Acts chapter 4. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. And because of Jesus' humble sacrifice on the cross, the scriptures say in Philippians chapter 2, that for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Taken in that light, it seems pretty important that we understand exactly who Jesus is and all about his name, right? Last week, I unpacked the timeless truth of who Peter said Jesus was. Who do you say that I am, Jesus said. And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so he is. So today, I want to remind you just who Jesus is. And who Jesus claimed himself to be. Because, my friends, the more we uncover about who Jesus is, the more we will discover who we are. And in John's Gospel, Jesus gave us seven clear and memorable statements about that. And the first one was this. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the sustainer of life, mankind's necessary food. Let me ask you, of what value is life without God in the picture? 
Hundreds of years before the Gospels were written, before Jesus came on the scene, the prophet Isaiah gave this profound invitation in Isaiah 55. He said, everyone who thirsts, listen to this now, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why, he asked, do you spend your money for what is not bread? And your wages... For what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I like the end of verse 2 which says, Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The King James Version says it this way, Let your soul delight itself in fatness. With all the diets going on, Isaiah says, Delight in the fatness. Now make no mistake about it, folks. This is no low-fat, low-sodium soybean substitute that he's talking about. The truth of the matter, what Isaiah wants us to really get a hold of is, is that God is our true bread. Jesus was sent from heaven to be the bread of life. Living under the sun, S-O-N, is our only hope for the complete satisfaction of our human soul. Amen. So God watches in amazement, said one writer, as people wear themselves out pursuing achievements or status or acquisitions which cannot satisfy your souls. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, the prophet asks. Why do you wear yourself out in work seeking for promotions and achievements when they can't give you the satisfaction that you desire? Why do you devote the hours of your night to endless channel surfing in search of a program about life that can make you laugh or fear or simply feel instead of choosing to really live? Why do you drive yourself into debt seeking to acquire that which money cannot buy? Of course, achievement and possessions and entertainment, they're not bad things. They can be very, very good gifts, but they make very bad gods, don't they? They're not enough to build a life on. They cannot nurture the human spirit. They're not bread to our souls. What bread is to life, Jesus is to our souls. And in John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died but he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, it doesn't take an astronomical IQ to figure out what Jesus is saying here, does it? We're all smart people, right? But I'll tell you what it does take. It takes a huge dose of humility to accept it. The Apostle John unveils the first dramatic I am statement of Jesus for the same reason that Isaiah issued his Old Testament invitation. His deepest desire was that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Amen? But how in the world did John know that here in the 21st century, life would be such a wreck? How did he know that? How could he have known, as one writer asks, Ann Graham Lotz, our lives would be so busy now, that our schedules would be so crammed and our focus would be so divided and our bodies would be so tired and our minds would be so bombarded and our families would be so attacked and our relationships would be so strained and our churches would be so programmed and that we'll be, we would be desperate for the simplicity and the purity and the freedom and the fulfillment of life in his name. How could he have known that? How did John know that with all that stuff that we have in the church and in our lives, that we would be thirsty for living water and starving for the bread of life? How could he know that? 
Well, I don't think he did know. But God did. Which is why he gave us Jesus. Because God knows all about human nature. He knows that most of the time we're short-sighted and we're simple-minded, faint-hearted and dissatisfied, just like the crowd to which Jesus spoke in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. You see yourself in that crowd? How many times have I caught myself in that crowd? I go to church or I go to a Christian conference. Maybe you even came here this morning seeking to have your heart warmed by a thrilling worship set or a great media presentation or some articulate preaching, which are all good things. But have I been so intent on my physical senses being satisfied that I've completely missed the whole thing and who the focus of the whole thing is? Jesus the only one who can satisfy my soul? The late Richard Halverson, former chaplain of the United States Senate years ago, noted that Christianity, quote, began as a fellowship around the person of Jesus Christ. Then it went to Greece and it became a philosophy. And then it went to Rome and became an institution. And then it went to Europe and became a culture. And then it came to America and became an enterprise, unquote. Indeed it has. Now, that's nothing new. But Jesus was showing this crowd in John chapter 6 that they needed provision for eternity for what their soul really hungered for and that he was that provision. And you and I need to come to that place as well. We cannot be like that crowd, spiritually short-sighted, See, don't settle for the temporal at the expense of the eternal. Don't clamor for the material at the expense of the spiritual. Don't choose the tangible and miss the incredible. Jesus basically says to that crowd, the choice is yours, my friends. You can go on living the way you've been living or you can have eternal life. That's precisely the choice that God gives to you and to me today. As Woodrow Kroll once pointed out, it's only when you are hungry that you need or you want bread, not when you're already full of other things. It's when we hunger for real forgiveness and salvation, not just for religion or some sensual satisfaction, that we most appreciate the fact that Jesus is the bread of life, right? Bread is for hungry people. Jesus is for hungry souls because he is the bread of life. I am made whole. Which brings us to the second I am statement. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He's the illuminator of life. Guidance gives us guidance. He's the eliminator of darkness. Focus, clarity, direction, Truth, life, all of these are dependent upon light. Light is what the world needs, but it's not necessarily what it always desires, is it? John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, Then Jesus spoke to them again, and he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, Jesus was revealing himself as the light of the world who, in the words of John Stott, opens the eyes of men's spiritual understanding and guides them into the truth about themselves and about what God has done to satisfy their most urgent needs. Let there be light. Remember those words? Where's that come from? Genesis, right? Those were the first recorded words out of the mouth of God in the Bible. Let there be light. And immediately after he said it, the Bible says what? And it was so. Trisha 
McCary Rhodes lends an amazing and profound insight to that truth when she writes these words. She says, in that moment, the living God chose to go public with his glory. God created us in his image that we might, like mirrors, reflect back the radiance of God's very self. His eternal plan was to fill the earth with that glory in this way, enabling us to live in the endless ecstasy of his light. To this end, we were made. But all too soon, sin reared its ugly head, obscuring the light of God's glory and sentencing mankind to the doom of eternal darkness. There can be no greater tragedy than to be created for the light of glory, yet trapped in a web of unending darkness. But man's rebellion would not derail God's plan to fill the earth with his glory. So he designed a plan that would set apart a people in whom the capacity for glory could be restored. This is exactly what Christ purchased on Calvary and what burst forth from the grave at his resurrection. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, the Jews were not confused about what they heard or about what he was proclaiming. His comment was so steeped in Old Testament allusion to the name of the almighty self-existent God who spoke light into existence that they became enraged. They gripped their teeth. They picked up stones. They wanted to kill him. But this was a lot bigger, my friends, than the Pharisees. This is a lot bigger than you and a lot bigger than me. Jesus is the light of the world. The entire cosmos is what the original language says. It is Christ who throws light upon life, revealing to us what it really is. This is what John wrote in his gospel, uh, in, in his gospel John chapter 1. He wrote, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man and he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. How sad of a statement is that? Do you know him? Is he light to you? Only Jesus is sufficient to light the dark corners and crevices of your life and mine. Only Jesus and his truth can illuminate and reveal all that hinders your relationship to God and make that relationship right. The light of Jesus brings light to the world. Jesus' words are as true today as they were that day. Without light, life as we know it would cease. You knew that, right? You and I would die. If there were no sun to produce light, there would be no life on this planet. Light is key. As the light of the sun is necessary for physical life, the light of Christ is absolutely essential to spiritual life. Only he alone can forgive sins. He alone can raise us up after we die. And his resurrection, which we celebrate today, is proof of that. He alone can secure our salvation. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 36, verse 9, for with you is a fountain of life. In your light, we see light. You've heard about people who have something called seasonal affective disorder, right? Sad for short, appropriate name. People with sad are extremely sensitive to the lack of light, so much so that during the shorter daylight hours of winter, they experience clinical depression. One treatment for this malady is, to ex is exposure to light. Let me make this very clear application. The world is steeped in a malady which could be classified as sad. Not seasonal affective disorder, sinful affective disorder. Amen. People have been in darkness for a long, long time. And it has certainly taken its toll, hasn't it? They need the light of Jesus. They need the light of Jesus. So, what the Bible 
tells us is to come out of hibernation. The church needs to come out of hibernation. If you have Jesus, you know what Jesus says you are? The light of the world. Just like him. Because Jesus is the light of the world, I am not blind. And neither does the world have to be. Which brings us to number three statement of Jesus. I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is the doorway to life. Jesus was our Passover lamb. The doorway was marked with the blood of a lamb. Ultimately, it was Jesus' blood. And sometimes people just don't get it. No matter how you communicate it to people, no matter how many different ways you say something. This is like my 33rd Easter that I've done Easter messages since I've been a pastor. And I can tell you, no matter how many different ways you say it, some people just never get it. But a lot of people do. Sometimes it doesn't get through. Or maybe it does, but they don't want to accept it. In the first five verses of John chapter 10, Jesus spoke in language they should have clearly understood, that of shepherds and sheepfolds. As Israel's spiritual shepherds, they should have caught the meaning. But because these Pharisees persisted in their rejection of Jesus, the doorkeeper, they were clearly not true shepherds. They were heartless shepherds. They didn't make the connection. Someone wrote, sheepfolds were built in various sizes and shapes, but all folds had one thing in common. You know what it was? They had only one door. If sheep were to get into the fold, there was only one way to do it. They had to go through the doorway. Regardless of the sheep, the variety, the size, the amount, there was only one way to get in through, into the fold. Through Jesus. It's interesting to drive around Scotland and see all the sheepfolds that are out in the fields and sometimes on mountainsides. And you see those sheepfolds all made of stone. But he's right, there's only one doorway to get in and out. In fact, the way that Jesus said, I am the door, is emphatic in the original language. We could translate it, I alone am the door of the sheep. There is no other. And so when Jesus referred to himself as the door, and when he bookended that picture with the phrase, I am the door, and then he added on to that, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved, he was claiming something that no one had ever claimed before. He was not only claiming to be the Messiah, but he was claiming to be God, who alone has the power to save. And they didn't really get it, but they sure understood what he was saying in John chapter 10, verse 19. It says, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed person. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, he just told them. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Then verse 30, I and the Father are one. Do you understand what he's saying? Are you getting it? Because acceptance of Christ as the door is the door to eternal life. 
You and I might not readily relate to a shepherd laying across a doorway, but the whole door motif is very familiar to us, isn't it? Everybody knows what a door is, right? Regardless of how we refer to them, doors have four basic functions. You know what they are? They let people in, they let people out. They keep people in, and they keep people out. And when Jesus said he was the door, his words went way beyond just being in or out of heaven. These words plumbed the depths of what it really means to be part of his kingdom. His words went to the heights of what it means to really live life in, as a child of God. Because life presents us with many doors, but there is only one door which leads to real life, an abundant life, and Jesus is that doorway to eternal life. And it's the life you and I need, not only for the there and then, but for the here and now, amen? Isn't it what you need? I need it. If Jesus promises in verses 9 and 10 that I just read tells me anything, it tells me that as the door to abundant life, he can meet us in the worst places of our pain. The worst places of our pain. He can give us life now, even though we struggle. That is what I believe Jesus is referring to in verse 9, which is pregnant with hope. When he said, I am the door, if anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. In other words, through him we gain access to a life that's full. Through him we gain access to a life that's free. He shall go in and out and find pasture. And then through him we gain access to a life without fear. You've got a choice. Only one door leads to life. Only one door is sufficient enough to gain you access to a life that's full, a life that's free, and a life not driven by fear. Only one door leads to life eternal. Jesus is that door. Only he is sufficient to give you the security and the confidence you need. So because he is the door, I am secure. It is in that context that Jesus made his next I am claim. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And Jesus is the keeper of life. He's the protector of us. He's the guardian. He's the caretaker. He's the caregiver. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that claim is as much for us as it was for them. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus literally says here, I am the shepherd, I am the good. That's how you literally translate it. And when Jesus used the term good, he was making an incredible claim. Good was a designation reserved in the absolute sense only for God. So by referring to himself as the shepherd, the good one, Jesus was making a claim to deity. What he was saying was, I am who I am. I am the shepherd. I am good. I am God. Amen. And how could he call himself God? Or good. Because in contrast to the false shepherds who were only in it for themselves, the good shepherd, he said, lays down his life for the sheep. As the saying goes, beauty is as beauty does. And by his death on the cross, Jesus, the true shepherd, exemplified the epitome of self-sacrifice for the sheep. So much so that he was willing not only to die for them, but instead of them 
Pharisees proved that they did not care for the sheep, but rather exploited them for their own ends. However, Jesus cares, and he does care. He's the owner. He's invested. It's not his desire that any one of them should perish. And by his death, burial, and resurrection, he proved that he would go to the absolute extreme to rescue his own. He died so that we could have an abundant life, not an abandoned life. Isn't that good news? We're blood-bought, soul-purchased by Christ himself. That's what the scriptures say. He knows us. And I don't care how insignificant that you think you are. If you're a follower of Christ, he knows you. He knows your name. He's called you by name. And that name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And we know him intimately. Let me ask you, do you know the sound of his voice? Do you recognize it? As Christ's passion is for his kingdom is to be populated with men and women from every tribe and every nation. It's not exclusively reserved for the Jewish nation. As the Messiah, he was interested in all who would answer his call to salvation. And he's still interested in that. That's why he said, I have sheep of another fold that must come in. But no one comes into that fold without going through the door. There is only one shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one who has given his life for the sheep. But make no mistake about it, Jesus did not die as a martyr. He died as a willing substitute. When he said, I have the authority to, to lay it down, my life, and to take it up again, it was tantamount to saying that he is God, for God alone has the power to take life and give life. And this is the power of both the crucifixion and the resurrection that we celebrate in honor today. Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who died for us. He's the great shepherd who lives for us. He's the chief shepherd who calls to us. He's the guardian shepherd who saves us forever. You must make your own personal decision. Will you follow him or will you follow some other shepherd. John 10 again, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. I am the Father. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And because he is the good shepherd, I am protected. Number five statement that Jesus made about who he was and is. One of the great ones here that we celebrate today. John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Since the moment Eve ate the fruit and Adam followed in her steps, Physical and spiritual death has reigned supreme, hasn't it? We can deny it. We can ignore it. We can shove it under the rug. We can refuse to acknowledge it. But the reality is that death happens and the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And yet we live, you and I live, in a death-denying society, don't we? Advertisers go to extremes to help us deny the inevitable fact of life. But the irreversible fact, wrote Billy Graham, is that no matter what your diet, no matter how much you exercise, no matter how many vitamins or health foods you eat, no matter how low your cholesterol is, you will still die. Well, that's interesting news, isn't it? Someday, some way, Billy Graham said, in the end, death will conquer you as it has every other person who has ever lived unless God took them straight up to heaven. There's only been a couple of people in the Bible like that. Death is the last enemy. And I say that at every funeral that I preach at. I just visited a man this two days ago, three days ago, that passed away right down the road. Death is an enemy. It's the last enemy. Sobering words. Truthful words. 
kind of words we need to take into consideration if we're to understand Jesus' relationship to death and life and our reaction to him. If the final enemy is death, the final answer is Jesus. John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Interestingly, this I am statement and miracle which accompanies it, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, was divinely placed exactly in the middle of John's gospel. Did you know that? It's right in the middle of John's gospel. Why? Because I believe it's the hinge upon which swings the entire purpose of John's gospel and Jesus' entire life on earth. It marks the turning point for all who encounter it. For the disciples, for these sisters that are in this text, for the Savior and everyone who seeks after the truth. This statement and the act of raising Lazarus from the dead are absolutely inseparable. Together they point us to the irrefutable fact that Jesus is the master over life and death. You take a careful glance at the gospel, any of the gospels, all of the gospels, and you will find that no one ever died in the presence of Jesus. No one ever died in the presence of Jesus in the Gospels. Not at least in any recorded account. Even the two thieves who were crucified with him died after Jesus gave up his own spirit. This entire scene of a dead man being raised to life is a prelude to eternity. A sneak peek at all that Jesus came to accomplish, namely to nullify the power of death and reverse the curse brought on by sin and to offer the gift of life to everyone who would, anyone who would put their total trust in him. It was proof positive of his claim that he is truly the resurrection and the life and that if anyone believes in him, they shall not die but live. You know what? In Christ, my friends, death is not final. It's transitional. Death means separation, not termination. Someone has said that the grave unearths our view of God, and that's true. Death challenges our definition of God, doesn't it? It chafes against the concept of God's goodness. Oh, if God, if you are so good, why, did you, why, did, why do you let death reign? Why is it that we interpret the presence of death as the absence of God's love? Do you ever think about that? Are healing and delivering and saving and rescuing the only ways God shows that he is present with us? That he deeply loves us or that he is the I am, like he can't control it? That death's run amok and he can't do anything about it? This crowd here in John chapter 11, they thought that physical death was the worst thing that could happen to somebody. They didn't realize that there's something much worse than physical death. Do you? Spiritual death. That's much worse. Eternal separation from God. And through the raising of Lazarus, we witness the glory of God and the affirmation of Jesus' authority. In John chapter 11, verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't do it with a Rhode Island accent, though. But seriously, his words were as powerful and effective as the one spoken at creation, let there be light. And there was light. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the one who was dead for four days came forth. Only one word comes to mind after reading the words in verse 44, which says, and he who had died came forth. One word, incredible. When Jesus says to a person, let there be life, there is life. Are you broken? Are you despairing of life? You know what Jesus is ready to say to you? Fill in your name in the blank. So and so, come forth. 
Let there be life. Friends, do you know what's wrong with this picture here in John chapter 11? Men that have been dead for four days don't come out of tombs. Not normally. That is not until Jesus speaks the words. You know what else is not normal? The drug runners, they don't become pastors. But with Jesus, they do. Murderers don't become evangelists. But with Jesus, they do. That is unless Jesus is the one who calls them. You know, Jesus calls all people to himself. It's up to us to respond. Is Jesus calling you to come forth? The raising of Lazarus drew a line in the sand that day, and it still draws a line in that sand today. Where does it leave you? Jesus promised to give eternal life to raise up on the last day everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him who sent me. That's what Jesus said in John 5. Do you believe? Jesus is the kind of God you want in your crisis in life. Every crisis. He's the kind of Savior you want at your funeral. He's calling you as he called Lazarus. You can ignore his voice and stay in the cold tomb of your unbelief if you want to, or you can believe what he says and come forth with a new lease on life. The choice is yours because he is the resurrection and the life. I am saved. I'm saved. And you can be too. Well, there's one claim Jesus made that seems to stand head and shoulders above the rest, which sent not only shockwaves throughout the streets of Palestine, but continues to shake the world today. It's exclusive, it's explosive, and it's expressive of all that we long for. It marks an end to the human heart's quest for answers, our need for direction and our clamor for security, and our search for significance. None of those things are found in principles or philosophies or prescriptions. They're found in a person. I am, Jesus said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So much to be said about this passage of Scripture, more than we could possibly receive in a single sitting. But if I were to give you one simple statement, to summarize what I believe Jesus is saying, it would be this. Salvation is a person. And that person is me, Jesus says. I am. Jesus is the way. He doesn't simply have a way. He doesn't simply suggest a way or point to a way. He doesn't map out the way. Do not be confused about what Jesus is saying. He's saying he is the one and only way. The pathway to life is the person of Jesus. Jesus' statement that no man comes to the Father but through me annihilates any other proposed way to heaven. There's only one way we can gain confident access into God's presence. It's through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus who died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. We enter by him and by him alone. He's the way. But you know, it goes beyond that. Jesus can claim that he is the way to God because he is God. He said in verse 1 of chapter 14, believe in God, believe also in me. And the implication there, the literal reading is, believe in God, in me believe. The same faith that we're to put in God should be put in Christ. There's no difference, there's no separation, there's no distinction, the two are one and the same. In John chapter 5, verse 20, the apostle writes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Without Jesus, there's no possible way to the Father. He's the only way, the fulfillment of truth, the source of all life. The source of eternal life is Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews stated it with perfect clarity. He said, and having been made perfect, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That's Hebrews 5, 9. That's what Christianity is all about, my friends. Jesus is the way to God because he is God. 
He is the I am. And Jesus was pretty succinct about it. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said it unequivocally. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In John 8, 24. Here's the bottom line. The pathway is open to you. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. How can I prove to you that it's worth your commitment? I can't. I can't. How can you know for sure? Well, you probably won't. You just have to believe it. You must choose. Believe in him and experience freedom or dismiss him and continue to live in fear. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I am free. But you know, with new life in Christ comes new responsibilities and new challenges, opportunities and truths of who you and I are. If the giver of life is in your life, you are an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. You're an ambassador of the king. You're a son. You're a servant. You're a soldier. You're a slave. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new reason to live if you're in Christ. New goals, new assignments, new meaning, a new master, new hope. You have a new future, and the world looks differently to you. How many can testify to that, that the world looks different since I've come to Jesus? You see your possessions a lot differently. Your gifts and abilities are now seen in light of eternity. As a matter of fact, you and I should start living our lives in reverse. Someone once said, purpose to begin every day at eternity and work backward. That way we know that every act, every word, every thought that issues from our life has eternal meaning and significance. There's only one way that we can do that, by staying connected to Jesus. And that brings us to Jesus' final I am statement, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. He's the source of a fruitful life. But that includes pruning and cultivation. And whether or not our lives become spiritually productive depends entirely and completely upon our connection to Jesus. And that's what John 15 is all about. Don't worry, we're not going to go through every verse. We're all connected to something, aren't we? Something drives us, something motivates us, something fuels the direction of our lives. Let me ask you, what are you connected to? What's your main connection? What's your vine? If there's anything that Easter underscores, it's the power of a resurrected life. And Jesus Christ, risen from the grave, is the only vine that can sustain a fruitful life. No attachment on earth, whether religious or not, can be a substitute for Jesus Christ. Nothing, none. Unless you are vitally connected to him, the quality of your fruitfulness will be nil. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 15. Verse 1, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it might bear more fruit. In verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then in verse 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Christ not only wants to be in us, he wants us to be in him. And that's what it means to abide. You're not abiding in Christ if the only time that we run to him is when we're in a bind. That's not abiding. That's manipulation. And the vine will not be manipulated by the branch. Guaranteed. Staying connected to Christ means you gotta want it. You gotta want him. You gotta want him more than anything else in your life. Do you? What do you want? What do you want? The confirming proof that you and I are really alive in Christ is that we bear fruit of eternal life. That's what Jesus said. My friends, you and I have the most incomprehensible privilege in the entire universe. We are invited to do life with Jesus. We talk about doing life with each other, right? 
community, how great and grand and groovy that is. This invitation is you do life with me, Jesus says. And God is glorified by that. The glory of God, Irenaeus said, is a man fully alive. Are you and I fully alive because Jesus lives? Are you? Because he is the vine, I am alive. During the inauguration of President Obama, Philip DeCourcy, some of you listened to him on the radio, was watching Fox News and they were discussing the legacy of George Bush at the time and he was unpopular at the time, but he hoped history would be kinder. That people would look back and see how he had brought safety and security to the homeland and Britt Hume, one of the Fox commentators, pitched in and he said, that's what Bush's legacy is going to be. That's what he's hoping historians will look at him with some greater fairness, no domestic terrorism since 9-11. And then he quoted something I was struck by, Philip says. I wrote it down that day. He said that President Bush once said this to Brit Hume, quote, on the 12th of September, everybody went back to their normal lives, but I did not, unquote. There are moments in history, of course, he says, when life is changed irrevocably. You can't go back to your normal life. And we think of days like Pearl Harbor. We think of days like September 11th. But such a day is the day that a person realizes the truth of who Jesus is. You can't go back to your normal life again after that day. After the day that Christ gets a hold of your soul, because of the bread of life, I am made whole. Because he is the light of the world, I am not blind. Because he is the door, I am secure. Because he's the good shepherd, I am protected. Because he's the resurrection and the life, I am saved. Because he is the way, truth, and the life, I am free. And because he is the vine, I am alive. Because he is, I am. So go and give him Jesus, shall we? Amen.